Thanks again to our worship team today. Those are, are great songs and great reminders that tie in to our text today from Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. I would invite you to stand for the reading of the scriptures today, and I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to have them open uh, and to follow along from Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6 and reading through verse 15. Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father in heaven, these are your words. I pray that you would take them and sanctify them to each heart present in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Four score and seven years ago. Six words with which you're familiar. Six words that if you're a fifth grader here at Heritage Christian Academy, strike dread into your heart. Because it means you have to memorize the rest of the speech as well. My fifth grader was one of those individuals disliking the, uh, the having to memorize this long, archaic message. And so I was, I was proud of myself, and when he was memorizing it, I thought, I can mem- I memorized this when I was your age, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth in this na- continent a new nation, and I thought I knew the whole thing. And then he shows me the page, and there's a whole bunch after that. And I realized I never memorized that. I'm not smart enough. And as I looked at it today, as a much older person, I realized, and, and I, I began to appreciate Lincoln's point. Lincoln's words eloquently declare what we know to be true instinctively, that freedom isn't free. We rightly remember the history this weekend. We rightly admire the heroes who fought in this country that we might be free. We thank God who called these individuals to sacrifice on our behalf so that he can give us his blessings and the desires for this land in which we currently sojourn. We love stories of deliverance, don't we? We love a good tale of freedom. And that's exactly what this Colossians text delivers. It's a story of true freedom that is found in Christ. It's got it all. It's got the victor. It's got the spoils. It's got a vanquished foe. And the best part of it is, just like our national history, it's history. It's true. It happened. And the freedom it declares matters today. And it matters to you and to me. Paul begins our text today with this call to go about our daily lives rooted in this freedom which is found in Jesus. 
The Christian's job is, is a daily living out of our freedom. And it's spelled out for us in the, in the scripture lesson that I read from Galatians chapter 5, that fruits of the Spirit passage. Here he calls the believer to be built up and established in the faith. In Galatians, he reminds them of the fruits of the Spirit that are born out of this freedom in Christ. And in all of this, he calls us to be thankful for what we have in Christ. He contrasts this call uh, to be rooted and established, that, that call that he has just given us, to avoid the false narratives, the false narratives which he calls philosophy and empty deceit. He calls it human tradition, which he is born out of the elemental spirits of this world, the rank and file demonic influence that brought about that is brought about by the enemy of our souls. The human desire to be free, when pursued apart from Christ, will always leave us lacking. I'm going to say that again. The human desire to be free, when pursued apart from Christ, will always leave us lacking. Human wisdom cannot bring freedom from poverty. It cannot bring freedom from illness. It cannot mend broken relationships in the fullest sense of those words. Worse yet, human tradition and wisdom is even less capable of making us right with the Creator, to whom we must give an account, because it can't deal with our sin problem. So we need a hero to fight so that we would have true freedom. And Paul wants us to know that we have this in Christ. In this text, we see three actions of Christ that assure our freedom. Three actions of Christ that he went through and endured so that we could have true freedom. And the first is this. We are truly free because Christ came to us. We are truly free because Christ came to us. Verses 9 and 10 say, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. If we're talking about a rescue, I guess it would probably go without saying, wouldn't it? that a rescuer is going to show up. And that's true. But in verse 9, Paul makes clear who this rescuer is. This isn't some flawed person as incapable of saving us as we are of saving ourselves. This isn't even the human par excellence only. Jesus was human, and he was the best human. But he's more than that. This is God himself. The fullness of the deity dwelt bodily in Christ to rescue us, to to give us, and to win for us true freedom. God came. The fullness of the deity came to dwell in Christ. God's desire and his promise to dwell with humanity started at creation. He was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was present with his people after they had been enslaved in Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt, and they wandered in a desert for 40 years. And he led them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He was with them in the tabernacle. He was with them in the temple. But now, in the womb of Mary, God came to dwell in a brand new way, of flesh and of bone. Christmas, the incarnation, is something that isn't defined by pretty lights and decorated trees and presents. The Incarnation was not a leisure cruise or a sightseeing tour for God. This was war. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came to know what it was to be human in a broken world. He came to suffer by enduring the same temptations 
that we face, yet succeeding in overcoming them on our behalf. He came to fulfill the law and to address every obstacle which stood in the way of us having a right relationship with our Creator. He came to die so that we might live. What philosophy and human wisdom couldn't secure, He came to provide. So, so what does this mean for us? In part, the incarnation means that God is not unfamiliar, un- unfamiliar with our sufferings. The book of Hebrews tells us that he is not unable to, un- to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's very familiar with them. He lived them. One of the great, greatest arguments that's leveled against Christianity, and it's, it's a hard one to address, and I think we, we know so because we all face it, is the problem of evil. Why does evil persist in a world where God reigns? And there are a lot of answers we could give to that question. That's a whole apologetic in and of itself. We could spend time there. But what I want to focus on in this, in this text, is that the part of the answer to that question is that God came. He came to be a part of it. He didn't leave us in it. He came and and faced it head on on our behalf. We have to be confident in that. The Incarnation teaches us that while evil does exist, God personally came to do something about it. He suffered and he died. There's never been a greater paradox in the history of creation than that the author of life would inject himself into our world of sin and die to save sinners. But he did. If we ever wonder if God cares about us, we can look to the fact that he came as flesh and became familiar with our sorrow. The incarnation, Christ becoming flesh, also means that we're not slaves to anyone or anything save the Savior himself. Paul says that in being united with Christ through faith, it means that we, as the text tells us, are filled in him, who is the fullness of the deity. There's absolutely nothing, Christian, today that you lack. We are the head, as the scriptures say, and not the tail. When we look to the moral decay around us and, and and, and we look around and think, man, our, our, our point that we're trying to make and declare is becoming less and less popular. We're not losers here. We're not bound to the narrative of this world. We don't despair like those losing a battle. Christ came, and because of that, being united with him, we have nothing to fear. I once had a, a Christian student. I did my, my student teaching. I did uh, a social studies education as my undergrad. And as I was... Doing my student teaching, I was at Park Center High School, and I was teaching Asian geography. And there's a, a boy in the class who found out I was from Northwestern. Uh, that's where I did my undergrad. And, and he came and, and he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, Charles, I am. He said, have you read the book of Revelation? I said, yeah. Because that stuff is scary. I said, Charles, did you read the whole book? He's like, yeah, I read the whole thing. I think he said he read it like twice. Like, you got to the end. I said, yeah. I said, who wins? I said, Jesus. And I said, then we got nothing to worry about. We got nothing to worry about. Because he has become flesh, we are truly free. Christ's coming is freeing because of what he did also when he came. And that's our second point. We are truly free because Christ forgave us. I'm going to read this text again, just a few verses, 11 to 14. And I want to do so because I think that this is going to be something that some of you might disagree with me on. 
But I want to look at the text because I think the text speaks to us in this. It says, In him you were also circumcised, that's in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's a lot in these verses. But the basic gist of Paul's point here is that while Christ came to save us, he didn't just come to save us from this external enemy. He didn't come to save us from this this outside force that was oppressing us. He came to defeat a different enemy as well. That's ourselves. That's our sinful nature. This text says we were the enemy. Romans 5 tells us this. He says, you were the enemy. I was the enemy. The problem wasn't just outside. It was us. He came to save us from our own guilt. And this is what it means when Paul says that there needed to be a putting off of the body of flesh. It's a reference to our sinful nature, our old Adam. For us to be right with him, something needed to be done. Notice in this text the language that's used to describe this process of removing our old nature and our sinful flesh. Would you look at the text? It says it's circumcision. He speaks of circumcision. Circumcision was an Old Testament practice, and I think you probably are familiar, in which Jewish boys, eight days old, were sealed with the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It wasn't something they chose. It wasn't something they were able. Eight-day-old babies don't choose anything, right? But it was done by the hands of a Jewish moil, a priest. The circumcision that's done here in this text is different. It says that this text... Uh, This circumcision, I mean, is not done by hands, but it's done by Christ. It's not done only to men or, or male babies, but to all people. And it consists of, and it explains what this is, it's a removal of the dead nature so that a new one could dwell in its place. And so how does this hands free circumcision that Christ does happen? It's described in verse 12. It says it happens in Christian baptism. That in baptism, Christ does the circumcision of our hearts, removing the dead and replacing with new. There are disagreements with Christians on baptism. And I acknowledge that. And because this text addresses it, I think I need to too. But one of the main disagreements, and maybe the main disagreement, between Christians centers on the question of whether baptism is something that we do for God? Or is it something that God does for us? That's the main question. As we look at this text, I see that that it teaches that Christ uses the means of baptism to do something for us. For us, not for him. Baptism compared to circumcision, not the will of the recipient, but of the Lord. Baptism in it is an act in which a child of Christ 
is given faith in the promise of Christ's victory on the cross. And that happens because our old nature is buried and a new one is raised to life. That's what the text says. He chose to do this. God chose to do this by means of water and the word. That's what he chose to to use. Baptism is an act by which our old dead Adam is replaced by the life Christ has in himself, the new Adam. This is salvation language here. It's forgiveness language here. Our old nature being removed and our new nature being brought to life is salvation language, forgiveness language. This is why when we baptize, Pastor Franz is baptized. Here for 22 years he served. How many were baptized by or had a child baptized by Pastor Franz here? Okay, a number of you, right? My children included. When that happens, Pastor Fran says this. We believe that God gives the gift of faith in baptism. Where do we get that scripturally? Well, right here. It says that in baptism, having been buried in baptism and raised to faith, that's something God is doing for us. He's giving us that faith. But that this gift will be lost if the child is not taught the word of God or given a Christian example to follow. It's not the pastor's will or the parent's will or water alone, but water attached to the promises of God's word. This too, by the way, is why the the question will come, well, what about I believed before I was baptized? How did that work? Well, the operative agent here is the word of God attached to the water. So if you hear a preacher preaching the word and you believe, it's not the preacher. Pastor Fran's a great preacher. A lot of you are here because of his preaching, right? Well, not today, hopefully. It <laughs> be really disappointing. Uh, but at the end of the day, the proclamation of the word isn't Pastor Franz's ability to speak. It's the ability of the word to do work on your soul. That's what the text here is teaching. So that's why people can come to faith apart from baptism, right? The word of God being proclaimed. Baptism, though, is a proclamation of the victory of Christ over our sin. And the very word of God concerning that victory, the gospel works faith. In the hearts of the hearers. It's Christ's doing. And because of that, we have assured, we have assured confidence that our sin problem has been dealt with in full. It's not something that we have to commit. It's something that he fully accomplished on our behalf. So this is all very theological, but what does this mean? It means that those trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross, those whom Christ has granted that victory, are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, the scriptures say. This is Christ's doing so that you know it's valid. You are no longer defined in terms of your sin. Christ came to deal with that sin. Your struggles with with, uh, that stubborn sin that you can't quite get rid of don't define who you are in Christ. The shame that you carry because of your past sins. The fear of knowing that because of your ongoing battle with the flesh, you'll probably sin again. All of those fears are met with the fact that Christ dealt with them on the cross. Trusting in that, you're free. Your record of debt, it says right here in this verse, in verse 14, is nailed to the cross. The cross event was enough. He became sin, it says in 2 Corinthians. The cross event was enough. It was there that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that is exactly how he sees you now, Christian. There is no one freer in the divine courtroom than the one trusting in Jesus and the finished work on their behalf. He came to deal with us. He came, and we can be truly free because he forgave us. Finally, 
And our last point, shorter, I promise. Seen in verse 15, and it's this. We are truly free because Christ defeated the enemy. Verse 15 says, He that is Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Many of you are familiar with Martin Luther's hymn. I, and i got to have you raise your hand because I'm getting a little long-winded here and i got to make sure you're awake. A Mighty Fortress. Everybody familiar? Anybody? Okay. There's that phrase. I'm not going to sing it, especially because my voice isn't there today or any day. But the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Right? You're welcome for me not singing that. And because the last point was so theological, I had this, I read this this week and I had to, I had to share it. Many of you know that, that that phrase, Prince of Darkness, that Martin Luther uses, is not directly used in Scripture of Satan. But Prince of Darkness is used of another famous person. Anybody familiar? Ozzy Osbourne, the front man for Black Sabbath, the heavy metal singer. Okay? I don't know why I'm sharing this, just because I think it really fits up the text. But this week, and it's not funny that he had back surgery, but as I understand it, he underwent back surgery, and it was a fairly serious back surgery. And I laughed out loud when I read the article because I read this quote. The prince of darkness will also reportedly require a lengthy amount of convalescence with round-the-clock care provided by a nurse at home. And all I could think of was Luther's song, like, Satan needs a lengthy amount of convalescence with round-the-clock care provided by a nurse. Well, Ozzy Osbourne, as he is, is this individual, sorry, I, I lost my, I, see, this is what happens when I tell stories. I really shouldn't tell stories, I, but I literally laughed out loud at that, right? This, this prince of darkness, Ozzy Osbourne, is going through far less than what the true prince of darkness went through on Good Friday afternoon. This text speaks of what the cross event meant for Satan. It's the vanquishing of the enemy of our souls. Paul employs in this text the imagery of a Roman victory parade, a military victory parade. The Romans would march into the city after they've conquered a, a, another kingdom or another, another city. They, they march into the city in triumph, and, and they would be in joyful procession. They'd be on horses, and the people would be gathered. The citizens would cheer, and they would throw, they would throw flowers out onto the road. And the horse would trample, the horses would trample those flowers. And the aroma, if you can imagine it, with trampled flowers, just smelled beautiful. It was life. It was victory for the winner. For the loser, who was also there, it was the smell of death and defeat. In that day, the conquered king would be disrobed. And a hook would be put in his jaw or something like it. He would be drugged along at the tail of the parade. And as they marched and everybody cheered, they'd march to the square, the city center, and they would execute the king that had been defeated. Everybody would cheer. This is exactly the language that's used in this text. This is what Paul says happened to Satan at the cross. In fact, the word disarmed, which is in many of your translations, is actually the word disrobed. 
And that's how I know that this is the illustration that, that Paul is making here, right? And in most, uh, or at the, the cross, what we see is that Satan was defeated once for all. The claim that he had over sinners that began with Eve in the garden, that was over. His head was crushed. The prince of glory hung on a cross, and as Jesus cried out, it is finished, it was all over for the enemy of our souls. He's now being led in a joyful procession for us and those in Christ, who's disrobed, he's with a hook in his jaw, and he's being led to his final end. And it does say in the scriptures that on the way, he wants to devour. And he is seeking those whom he may devour. But we have confidence in Christ that we are free. Martin Luther said this, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's news that is truly free. As Lincoln noted, as Christ proved, freedom isn't free. Christ's freedom was a costly freedom, but it's a true, it's a lasting freedom. And it's in that freedom that we go about our lives grateful to the one who came, grateful to the one who came to deal with our sin, and grateful to the one who came to defeat the enemy of our souls so that we can proclaim freedom in him to all, to the captives. Amen. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word that is truth. I thank you that you did come, Lord Jesus. I thank you that you came to deal with my problem of sin. And for each here as well. I thank you that you came to to defeat our enemy of our souls, Satan. That we have life eternal because of this. Pray for each person here today. If they don't have that confidence and freedom, I ask that you would give them that confidence and freedom. As they hear the promise of what your son came to do proclaimed, I ask God that you would give them an assurance of that. Each soul here we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.